The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Praise the Lord. He is risen. You guys, if you couldn't tell, I am fired up. And um, I love that video that our media team put together. And by the way, I wanted to share this with you. Uh, The guy that you just saw, his name is Adrian. He comes to church here, and he's from Germany. He started to come here a year ago, got saved at our Easter service one year ago. Praise the Lord. And the guy that was doing the voiceover, his name is Oscar. He also got saved one year ago at our Easter service, and then they got baptized. They've been getting plugged in. They've been getting discipled, and now they're using their gifts and talents. Adrian is a composer, as you just learned, and he's using his gifts to glorify God. That's what this whole thing is all about. Powerful, powerful. Well, um, welcome to our Easter service. This is the the first of four services that we'll be holding, holding, and I hope that you'll come back tomorrow morning for our sunrise service at 6.30 a.m. right outside on Solomon's porch. Uh, It'll be a a unique and different message, and we can relive the moments of that first Easter Sunday when the women got up early and went to the tomb. I also want to just welcome those of you who are listening live on the radio right now, KSDW, KWVE. Also want to say hi to our online family. We love you guys and know that you're part of our church, you're in our hearts, and although we can't see you, we are praying for you and we love you. Um, Also want to welcome the guys down at Teen Challenge. Will you join me in welcoming all of them? Also, I will also say this, in two weeks, John mentioned this, but I'll reiterate it. We'll be holding our first baptism of the year. And for those of you who are followers of Jesus, but you've never been baptized, it is an important step in your faith journey. It is an outward symbol that, that tells the world that you have become a follower of Jesus, and it pictures in the natural what God has already done in your spirit. So you go under the water, it's a symbol of you being buried with Christ in the tomb, and then you come up a new creation, and we want to celebrate that with you. So make your plans and bring your bathing suits. Uh, two weeks from today, we'll have a big party. But with that, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll jump right into our sermon this evening. Heavenly Father, we believe that you're here. You have met with your bride, the church. And 2,000 years ago, you shook the earth when you rose from the dead. The Bible says that, that the earth trembled, the earth shook, there was an earthquake. And I pray that a similar thing would take place this weekend that it would happen in our hearts. Lord, would you wake us up? Would you shake us up to the reality of your love and your goodness and your mercy that you displayed when you sent your only begotten son, Jesus, to die on the cross in our place and then to rise triumphant from the grave? Give us faith to believe today in Jesus' name. And we pray and ask all these things together in your name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, today we join billions of Christians around the world in celebration of the fact that 2,000 years ago, Jesus rose from the dead and conquered the grave. Somebody say amen. Amen. One preacher said it like this, when Christ rose, death died. 
The resurrection of Jesus means that death doesn't get the final word. Life does. But it also means that you can walk in freedom. Now, in America, I don't know that there's something that we value or esteem more highly than freedom, culturally, and maybe the thing that we value most, right? We pride ourselves on being the land of the free and the home of the brave, right? But political and social freedom are really just two types of freedom. And there are many people who are free politically, yet are bound spiritually, emotionally, and mentally. They're trapped. So if you were to go to the Louvre in Paris, to this world-famous museum, there you would find these four partially completed sculptures. They were carved by none other than the great Renaissance artist Michelangelo. And what these marble blocks depict is various human forms in different states of, of, of captivity. They're trying to break free from the marble, but they're trapped. The collection is aptly titled The Captives or The Prisoners. The figures are forever trapped in a state of almost freedom. And I think those statues do a good job of depicting the actual state of so many people today. You see, many of us long to be free but feel incapable of freeing ourselves. Well, listen, the message tonight is Jesus came to bring freedom. And who the sun sets free is free indeed. Amen? In fact, at Jesus' very first sermon, he went into the local synagogue and there, as an itinerant preacher, he was given the pulpit and given the opportunity to share. And he went and he found the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And he opened it to a specific spot. And this is what he read on that day. And I'd love it if we could read this together out loud. This is Luke 4.18. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus read that text, then he rolled up the scroll, and then he sat down, and he offered the following commentary. He said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That was the entirety of his sermon that day. And then the rest of his three-and-a-half-year ministry illustrated the powerful point that he made in that first sermon, that he had come to truly set men and women free. He came to release the prisoners and the oppressed. So if you're in here today and you are under bondage or affliction, if you feel imprisoned by anything, whether it be fear or sin or grief or regret or shame, the good news is that Jesus wants to set you free. And how does he do it? Through the resurrection. Let's go ahead and begin reading in John chapter 20. I don't even think I told you to turn there. We're in John chapter 20. And if you can begin reading with me there in the first verse, we read early on the first day of the week. So that would be Sunday. The Sabbath is Saturday. The first day of the week is Sunday. That's why we do church on Sundays. While it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and she saw that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. 
So we begin here on that first Easter Sunday with Mary's experience at the empty tomb. And we know from the other gospel accounts that she wasn't the only woman to go to the tomb that morning. There were several others with her, but John, for his purposes, chooses to take the camera lens and focus it singularly on Mary to detail her experience. So who was Mary? Let's talk about her. Mary was from Magdala, which is why she's called Mary Magdalene. And we don't know a whole lot about her past, aside from the fact that before meeting Jesus, she had been possessed by seven demons. So try to imagine the continual torment that was her daily life and her daily experience in reality. Her whole world was bound up in darkness, but then she meets Jesus, and he leads her out of the dark and into the light, and she's set free. And from that moment on, she becomes a devoted follower of Jesus. You know, the Bible says that those who've been forgiven much love much. And I almost wonder if Jesus didn't say that, thinking of Mary, because that verse fits her to a T. She knew the depravity from which she'd been delivered, the darkness from which she'd been set free, and so it developed within her a deep, deep well of love for Jesus. Her love is is evidenced in the fact that she was among the last of those who stood at the foot of the cross. Even after the disciples had fled, Mary stood there at the foot of the cross three days prior. And then she's among the first to go to the tomb three days later. And she goes while it's still dark. Now, the fact that John points that out, I don't think he's just giving us an added detail about the time, because he already told us it's early. I think when John describes it as still being dark, I think he's using that as a symbol or perhaps as a metaphor for the darkness that enveloped her heart and mind. You see, the Bible tells us that when Jesus hung on the cross on Calvary, that at the third hour, the skies went dark. And it's almost like the darkness that covered the sky on that day still lingered in the heart of Mary on this day. And I wonder if that describes you today. You know, sometimes we'll describe someone who's in an emotionally difficult place. We'll say that they're just in a dark place. And if that's you, then can I just remind you of something? That the night is always darkest just before the dawn. The psalmist said it like this in Psalm 30, verse 5. He says, weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And that was about to become Mary's experience. The darkness of Friday was about to give way to the glorious light of Sunday, but not quite yet. You see, when she arrives, she sees that the stone has been removed, but she wrongly assumes that grave robbers have come and stolen Jesus' body. And so she turns and she runs and leaves. And as she's running away, she bumps into Peter and John, who on their own were making their way to the tomb. And she tells them about her experience. And at this point, the camera pans from Mary and refocuses on Peter and John. Look at verse three, it says, so Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb, and both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. We're gonna talk for a minute about Peter and John's journey to faith. These guys are always together. They're basically inseparable in the Gospels. 
I mean, prior to becoming disciples, they were both fishermen. That was their occupation. They were friends. And then they together became followers and disciples of Jesus. They were part of his innermost circle of trusted friends. But even after the resurrection, they continued to, to minister together. So it's no surprise to see them together here. These guys were like macaroni and cheese, like peanut butter and jelly, like pepperoni and pizza. They just went together. And I think you get a glimpse of the kind of friendship they had in verse 4, where John includes this detail that they ran to the tomb together, but John lets us know he outran Peter. And that adds nothing by way of enhancing our story or our understanding of Easter. He just includes it for Peter's sake. And you know, Peter's like reading this and he's like, really, John? Like you include that in the Bible? He's like, it is what it is, pal. I outran you. Those are the kinds of friends you need to cultivate in your life, by the way. And so they run to the tomb and it says he bent over. So John's there. He's got time to kill. Peter hasn't arrived yet. He bends over and looks in at the strips of linen lying there, but he doesn't go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and he went straight into the tomb. And he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. So when John looks into the tomb, he doesn't see Jesus. But what he does see are these linen strips. Now, why did that catch his eye? I suggest to you because it didn't make any sense. See, Mary Magdalene's assessment had been that grave robbers had come and stolen Jesus' body. But if that were the case, then surely they would have taken these linen cloths, these burial clothes, because that's where all of the spices and and where all of the, the things that cost a lot of money went. So the evidence didn't seem to support her conclusions because those linens were the most valuable thing in the tomb. Why would the grave robbers leave those behind? Now, Peter arrives, and he looks in as well, and he notices the same thing that John had seen. He sees the linens lying there, but then notice he adds this detail. He also sees the the, the folded napkin. This would have been a cloth about the size of a bath towel that they would have used to, to drape over Jesus' face. It would have been ornate. It, too, would have been expensive. And, and Peter notices that it was delicately folded and placed beside the grave clothes. Now, I don't know a whole lot about robbers, but one thing I do know is that they tend not to leave the most valuable things behind when they rob the place. And the other thing I know is that they don't tend to clean up after themselves or fold laundry when they go. Any of you ever found your home burgled? Is that a word? Burgled? (laughs) And you walk in and they've done your laundry, they've cleaned the house, they've folded the towels. I mean, that's the kind of robber I'm looking for. Now, the strangest thing of all about the grave clothes is the way, the manner in which they lie there. This is what really caught their attention. You see, the original language suggests that they were all stretched out in place as if the clothes simply deflated in place of where the body had once been. Picture a chrysalis that a a butterfly has emerged from and the chrysalis remains intact. It would have been impossible for this to happen any way other than a resurrection. And so as Peter takes this all in, he molds it over in his mind. 
And this can be seen in the different words that John uses to describe the way he and Peter processed all this information. You see, he uses a couple of different words, two different words for the word looked or saw. When John says that he saw the linens there, it describes a word that means to glance at, to observe, to see. But he uses a different word for Peter. When Peter looked in, the word that is used is the Greek word theore, and it means to theorize or to speculate or to contemplate or to scrutinize. In other words, as Peter looked at the grave clothes, he starts to put the pieces of the puzzle together in his head. Now, it still didn't make total sense. It wouldn't for some time. But the light of the glory of that that Easter morning, it was beginning to dawn in Peter's heart. Now, as he stood there theorizing, putting the pieces of the puzzle together, John steps in, and we read about that in verse 8. It says, finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, again, John, referencing, again, I just want you to know I was there first. When he, uh, when he saw, he believed. Now, they still didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. All right, so John now steps in. He was hesitant to go in at first, perhaps because it would have made him ceremonially unclean, but he's like, I don't know, it's a big day. Peter's in there. He goes in, and he sees and believes. And again, the different word for see is used. This is the Greek word, I do, and it's ido, I believe, and it speaks of perceiving and understanding. But he doesn't just stop with acknowledging and this mental ascent. Something goes on in his heart, and John believes. Now, belief is a major dominant theme in John's gospel. He mentions the word some 98 times, and he wants us as the readers to know that this is the exact moment in time when he arrived at that place of belief. You say, but he was already a disciple. He'd been there. He'd seen Jesus walk on water, turn water into wine, raise the dead. I mean, didn't he already to believe? And the answer is yes, to a degree, but, but belief is something that grows and it matures over time. And everything John had experienced and witnessed over the last three and a half years with Jesus, it all led up to this climactic moment as he stands in the empty tomb and he fully believes. He had crossed kind of the Rubicon of faith. This was a watershed moment in the life of the Apostle John. And for him, there would be no turning back. Now, what I love about this is right after saying, I believed, In the very next verse, he goes on to point out, now, we still didn't understand all the implications of the resurrection. What I take that to mean is John didn't understand everything. He didn't have all of his theological T's crossed and I's dotted, but he had seen enough, enough to cross the threshold of belief. And the thing I, again, love about Peter and John's experience is that it reminds us that faith is a journey. It's something that you walk in and grow in. You see, they didn't start out with full-fledged faith. If anything, they started out as skeptics. The The resurrection was the very last thing that either of them was expecting that day. But as they followed the clues, as they gathered the evidence... As they, as they weighed the information that they received, they landed at this place of belief. And, and, and I wonder if you're not on a similar journey tonight. You see, you're here, 
examining the life of Jesus. Maybe you've been coming to church for some time, and you're certainly not opposed to Jesus. You like his teachings and the values, and and you like what the gospel does in a person's life, but you haven't yet crossed the threshold of full-fledged belief in Jesus. He's not the Lord of your life yet. You haven't put all your trust in him, which is what it means to believe. And today, my prayer for you is that you would go all the way and that you would arrive at that place of belief just like John did. Now, at this point, the camera pans from Peter and John, and it directs itself back on Mary. In verse 11, now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And it says that she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken away my Lord, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, don't hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, and she said, I've seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Here we return to Mary, and we find that when she first arrived at the tomb, she failed to to go in and observe for herself. She just saw that the stone had been rolled away. But, but now, having run into Peter and John in her stupor, she just kind of meanders back to this scene of the empty tomb. Only this time, she goes in and looks for herself. And she sees there two angels. They hadn't been there a moment ago when Peter and John looked in. But now for Mary, there's two angels. And then when she asks, or when, when, when they ask her why she's crying, she tells them, You know, I don't know what you would do if you saw an angel, but she's got a bit of an attitude. I don't know if you picked up on that. Just tell me where you guys have laid him, and I'll I'll go get him. Now, keep in mind, Jesus was kind of a a, probably an average size guy, and then you let's just say he's 175 pounds plus another 100 pounds of burial spices and linens. You you think she's going to just throw that on her shoulders? But that's what grief does. It just gives you superhuman strength. And so when they ask her, she answers them. Now, now, how do you explain Mary's nonchalant answer to these angels? Well, there are a couple of explanations. First, we know that she was crying really hard, so the text tells us that. You ever cried so hard that you can't even see? It's just like, (laughs) and you can't even see through bleary eyes, and so that's one possible explanation. All she sees are two figures, and in her uh, delirium, she doesn't recognize them as strangers. But that leads to the second possible explanation as to why she didn't recognize the angels. And that's because maybe they were dressed casually. Um, did you know that in Hebrews 13, too, the Bible tells us to be careful when we entertain strangers, for some have entertained angels unaware. 
Anybody ever feel like you've run into an angel and you just had an encounter like, wow, that person showed up at just the right moment in time and gave me just what I needed and then I turned around and they were gone. I know, I know several stories. I've, I've talked to people in this church who've had angelic encounters and, and so that might be a, a possibility. But the third possibility is the one I like best. And that would suggest that when a heart craves Jesus to a degree and to the depth that Mary's did, even angels won't suffice. And so she turns from the angels. And it says in verse 14, she turned around and now she sees Jesus standing there. Now she doesn't recognize that it's him. And she finds herself in a conversation with him. And again, we're struck by the notion that Mary could mistake Jesus for the gardener. Hadn't she spent like the last three and a half years with him? And to think that she wouldn't recognize him, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But again, remember how traumatic this day has been for her. She's bleary-eyed, she's confused, she's grief-stricken, and on top of all of that, the last thing she's expecting to see is a resurrected Jesus. Remember, she thinks grave robbers have stolen the body. Now, personally, I find beauty and even poetry in this idea that Mary refers to Jesus as a gardener. Let me explore this idea with you for a second. God is in so many ways likened to a gardener. Throughout the Old Testament, many of the prophets liken him to a gardener. And in fact, when you go all the way back to the beginning, we find God planting a garden and calling it Eden. And there he puts Adam and Eve, and we find him cultivating the garden and walking in it. Did you know that every evening, Adam and Eve had a standing appointment with God? At the, the, the moment when the sun has just kind of gone beyond the horizon in the coolness of the day, they call it the golden hour. In that moment where it's just everything is still and calm and peaceful, they would meet with God and they would walk with God in the cool of the day. How many of you would like to have that for your daily quiet time? Just kind of chewing the fat, going over the day's events with God. So that's their experience. But then they give in to temptation. They eat of the forbidden fruit. And as soon as sin enters the the equation, they're cast out of the garden. They're cut off from God's presence. Death is introduced. And then listen to this. Genesis chapter 3 tells us that God literally stationed two cherub angels with flaming swords to bar the entrance to Eden. Why? So that he can keep Adam and Eve from going back in and eating of the tree of life and thus forever being locked into this state of brokenness and fallenness and sin. He was waiting for his own to come. God was his own son, Jesus. And when Jesus came, he bore the curse that God placed on the earth. You see, part of the curse with Adam and Eve is that the ground would produce thorns and thistles. And what did they place on Jesus' skull as he was being crucified? Yes, it was thorns that were driven into his skull. Those thorns were a symbol of the curse. And I would suggest to you that when Jesus hung there on the tree, the flaming sword of God's fiery judgment fell on Jesus in your place. The question is why? So that you and I could regain access to the true garden. You see, everything that your soul longs for, everything that you were created for is in Eden, but we've been locked out of Eden until Jesus. 
And now through his sacrifice, we are welcomed back in. Everything that was lost in Eden was restored where? In another garden, the resurrection tomb of Jesus. He reversed the curse. Somebody say amen. Praise the Lord. That's what our God does. He takes graves and he turns them into gardens. And so she doesn't recognize that it's him there in the garden she mistakes him for the gardener, but then Jesus says one word to her that, that removes the scales from her eyes and awakens her heart to the reality of who he is. What does he say? He says her name, Mary, Mary. You know, there's, there's something about hearing the sound of your own name. You can be in a crowded room, not know anybody. You hear your name and you just, your attention is is peaked, and, and researchers in this field say that our brains light up in all kinds of different ways every time we hear our name mentioned. But now let me ask you to imagine something with me. Imagine your name on the lips of Jesus. That's what Mary heard. Was it something about his intonation? Or perhaps was it something about the tenderness with which he uttered those two syllables, Mary, and it grabbed her heart and she said, Rabboni, and she clung to him. You see, there's a sense in which all of us have a desire to be known in that way, especially by God. Years ago in the church, there was a popular song. It was written by a guy named Tommy Walker, and the song had this line in it that said, he knows my name. He knows my every thought. He sees each tear that falls, and he hears me when I call. He knows my name. And I don't think that's just poetry. It's actually true. He knows your name. The scriptures say it like this. This is John 10.3. I want you to read this together with me out loud. It says, the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. Praise the Lord. There is a God in heaven who is so big that he spans the universe in the palm of his hand, and yet he is so near that he knows the name of every person on the planet. But he doesn't just know your name. There are a million other things that God knows about you tonight. He knows your dreams. He knows your desires. He knows the, the fears and the wounds and the hurts and the worries that you carry. He knows everything there is to know about you. He sees the good. He sees the bad. He sees the ugly, and he's not turned off by any of it. In fact, he's calling to you now. He's calling your name. And with ears of faith, I pray in the name of Jesus, you would hear the voice of your shepherd. After her encounter with Jesus, Mary runs to the disciples. And I love this part of the story. We're almost done. She says, I've seen the Lord. And so Mary becomes not just the first person to see the resurrected Jesus, which is beautiful in its own right. Eve was the first one to take of the forbidden fruit, and so it's fitting that a woman would be the first one to receive Jesus, see the risen Lord. But in addition to that, she's given the incredible honor of becoming the very first evangelist and missionary. And she tells the disciples about her experience, which is what every Christian ought to do. I have experienced. I have encountered the Lord. Years prior, Jesus had set her free from her demons. 
But now he was delivering her and setting her free from the burden of grief. Her mourning gave way to rejoicing on the morning that she went to the tomb and she encountered the risen Lord. And I want to close with this thought. There are some things that Jesus wants to set you free from tonight. I started this sermon by talking about the desire we all have for freedom, and yet, at the same time, the difficulty that we experience in trying to achieve that freedom, or more so, maintain it. Like Michelangelo's statues, so many of us feel trapped. We feel like we're captives. We feel like we're prisoners. Maybe you feel imprisoned by your past tonight. There's so many people walking around who are weighted down by feelings of guilt and shame over what they've done in the past. It's like we have this tendency to carry our yesterdays with us into our present days. And far too many people are being continually crushed under the weight of guilt. The good news of the gospel today is that Jesus, because of the resurrection, can set you free from your past. Somebody say amen. He already paid the price for your sin. Let me just remind you that when he cried out, it is finished. That means paid in full. There's nothing left for you to do. It's already been paid for. All you have to do is receive the free offer of forgiveness that he gives to all his kids. Others of you might be bound by habits or addictions or chains that you feel incapable of breaking free from tonight. Broken patterns, cul-de-sacs of sin. You find yourself on this merry-go-round of life, and your whole experience of life is up and then down, back and then forward. You've tried and failed more times than you can count to change yourself. Well, Jesus came to set you free today. And there is power in the name of Jesus, not only to break you free from the chains, but also to empower you to live a life of victory. You see, none of us would argue with this idea that Jesus lived a powerful life, amen? Jesus was powerful, wasn't he? And so he speaks, and the wind and the waves obey him. Demons flee. Sickness disappears. Dead things spring to life. That's the power and the authority in which Jesus lived. Well, guess what? The resurrection makes that kind of power possible for every follower of Jesus. Let's read this verse together. This is Romans chapter 8, verse 11. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. The same Jesus who conquered the grave and defeated death and did away with Satan, he lives in you. If you are a child of God today and his experience can become your experience, you you can have a resurrection power to defeat sin, live victoriously, and experience the miraculous. Who doesn't want that? I mean, amen. Now, there's something else that the resurrection can set you free from, and I'll end with this. You can be set free from the fear of death. Now, death isn't something that we normally discuss. We don't like to talk about it. We'd rather avoid this subject altogether, yet it's the fate we all share. And Jesus specifically came to deal with our fear of death. The author of the letter to the Hebrews put it like this. This is Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Let's read one more verse together out loud. Since the children of flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, 
and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Can I just share something with you? The believer doesn't have to fear death because Jesus already defeated it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that he, he took the sting of death. Oh, death, where is your sting? Now, most of us, anybody not been stung by a bee in here? We've all been stung by a bee. It's an unpleasant experience. But as bad as it is for you, it's far worse for the bee, right? Because after that bee finishes stinging you, it flies off and it's Minutes, not days, are numbered because once it has stung, it is going to die. Well, Satan, he stung Jesus on the cross, which means there's no stinger left for you. Now, some of you are like, okay, but we still die. So what gives? Well, listen, what's the sting of death? The sting of death is the finality of it that there's nothing beyond it, that it's the end. But listen, because Jesus conquered the grave, the assurance for every believer is that you will too, because his tomb was empty, so too will yours be one day. And so for the believer, death is not the end, it is merely a transition, and your last breath on earth will be followed by your first breath in heaven. So for the believer, the only thing that hits you is death's shadow. The psalmist said it like this in Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I don't have to fear anything, for thou art with me. Now, shadows can be scary, and and you might wake up in the middle of the night and see a a, a particularly scary shadow cast on the, the wall of your bedroom there, but as soon as you flip on the lights, you realize that it was just a coat hanger or a pile of dirty laundry, and you also know that while shadows can be scary, they can't actually harm you, can they? And because Jesus was hit by the bus of death, because he was allowed himself to be inflicted with the sting of death, now just death's shadow passes over you. And this is of particular consequence to those of you who have loved ones who have left us. Now, this is my second Easter without my dad. He was the founding pastor of this church, for the few of you who don't know that, maybe you're a guest. And he was a pastor here for roughly 35 years, but then he was suddenly and tragically taken home to heaven, and there's not a day that doesn't go by that I don't miss my dad. But while there's sorrow, that sorrow is laced with hope. And I have an anchor for my soul that because my Redeemer lives, my dad lives, and I'm going to be reunited with him, I'm going to embrace him in heaven, I'm going to see my dad again. Praise the Lord. There's this climactic moment in this really great film, Braveheart, if you've ever seen it. It came out a couple decades ago, a uh, Mel Gibson film, and, 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 and his character, William Wallace, is fighting for the freedom of Scotland, I believe, against Britain. And, and at the end of his life, he's captured, and he's being tortured, and he's about to be executed. And for any of you who have seen the film, you'll know where I'm going. As the executioner raises his blade, and it's about to fall, William Wallace, he summons all of the strength that he can muster, and with his final breath, he cries out one word, Freedom! 
That is the chant of victory that Jesus declares from this side of the cross today. Because he lives, you too can live freely, victoriously, and fearlessly. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the victory that we have through your son, Jesus. But quite honestly, Lord, not all of us are experiencing that freedom today. Many of us are held captive. We're imprisoned by chains to our past, to our guilt. The dark night of our depression has yet to lift, and, and though you're risen, Lord, we're, our experience is like you're still in the grave. There's no power, there's no peace, there's no presence, there's no joy. And I want to bring you into the experience of walking in relationship with a resurrected Jesus. I promise you, it's different. It's real. It's not pretend. And it's offered to you this evening. There is an experience of Jesus that will bring you into fullness of joy. You can have the peace of knowing that your past is forgiven, that your present is empowered. You can begin to commune with the Lord. You can begin to have your prayers answered. You can live victoriously. You can triumph over the devil. You don't have to live in bondage. You don't have to be shackled in chains. There's something real that God wants to do in your heart. He's moving in our midst right now. And I pray by faith that you would Stand and have the faith and the courage to respond to the invitation. You see, Jesus is here, and you're not just here to, to partake of an Easter service or to listen to a sermon or any of that. God has brought you to this moment in time. And just like John had his moment where he crossed the threshold and he fully believed and embraced Jesus, even though he didn't have all the answers, even though he didn't have it all figured out, this could become that moment for you where your sins are forgiven. And, and for others of you, it could be that moment where you come home. The, the Gospels tell the story of the prodigal son who he left his father's house and he went into a wayward place and he abandoned his, his birthright and, and he just took his father's gifts and thought that that was what life was about. And, and then he came to himself one day. He said, I know what I'll do. I'll return to my father's house. And while he was yet a long way off, the father saw him and ran to him. And he embraced him. And he put a ring on his finger. And he put sandals on his feet. And he put a robe on his back. And he smothered him in kisses. And he called for a feast because his son, who was dead, was now alive. And God is calling you from death to life, from bondage to freedom. He's calling you out of the curse and into communion. He's offering you his forgiveness. He's offering you his spirit. He's offering you his life. If that's the desire of your heart, if you want to respond to that offer of forgiveness and freedom, you want to know that your sins are forgiven, that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, that you can have the assurance that when you die in this life, that you'll be ushered into the presence of Jesus. You slip your hand up. I want to pray with you tonight. Praise the Lord. So many hands going up tonight all over this room. People saying, I want Jesus. Now I'm going to ask those of you who just raise your hand all over this room. You get up and come. As the worship team begins to sing, you make your way down to the altar and I'm going to meet you down here and I'm going to welcome you into the family. You just get up and come. Have boldness. Have courage. Get up and come. Get up and come.
God is calling you. God is calling you. But there's a spiritual battle that is taking place inside of your heart right now. And so, Father, I just pray for those who raise their hands. Give them the courage and the boldness to stand up and to come forward. Thank you, Jesus. You know, so often we spend so much of our time worrying about what other people will think. But don't you think it's time we stop worrying about what those around us will think and we start worrying about what God in heaven thinks? And by the way, the only thing those people around you are going to do when you get up from your seat and you come forward, they're just going to rejoice with you. And all of heaven is going to rejoice as well because God is he's wooing you. He's drawing you with cords of love. Why would you resist him? Why would you hold at arm's length the love of your heavenly father? He's calling you by name. He's known you for every day of your existence. He dreamed you up. He thought of you. He formed you. He fashioned you in your mother's womb. And now he woos you into his family, into forgiveness. So you get up and come. The, the, the band is going to play one more time. And if you feel the stirring of the Lord, you get up and come. Praise the Lord. walk forward you have just made the best decision of your entire life and we are celebrating with you right now the bible says that all of heaven stops whatever it's doing and all the angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner that repents and gives their hearts to jesus and right now all of heaven is erupting in praise because of what you guys have just decided you've embarked on a journey with Jesus, it's going to carry you through the rest of your life, but you are set free right here, right now, today. So we're going to pray a prayer, and I'm going to lead you in this prayer. And what I want you to do, prayer is just a fancy word for talking to God. You can just re repeat after me and mean this from the bottom of your heart. And Jesus, according to God's word, will come in and he'll make his home inside of you. So just say this after me. Say, dear Jesus... Thank you for loving me. Thank you for forgiving me. For living the life I could never live. And dying the death I deserve. So I could be with you forever. I receive the gift of salvation. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and lead me in the path of life till I see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.